0: Introduction Welcome to Buttervent. If you scratch the surface of this lively cork town, you will discover that it has deep medieval roots, full of tales of the entrepreneurial spirit that embodies the town. Like the stories about the medieval Lombards who made Buttevant their influential trading hub, or figures like John Anderson, who laid the foundations for the modern town. This audio guide, written by locals and produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland, will introduce you to the fascinating stories of Buttervent, and it includes the latest important archaeological discoveries. The guide is broken into a series of tracks, each with a particular tale to tell, beginning with one of the oldest features of the town, the Franciscan Friary. The Franciscan Friary. The medieval ruins of Buttervan's Franciscan Friary are located to the rear of St. Mary's Catholic Church on the main street. The friary housed a thriving, vibrant religious community from the middle of the 13th to the 16th century. The Normans appreciated the importance of religious belief in people's lives. They had built an abbey for the Augustinian Order in nearby Ballybeg in 1229, and in 1251, work commenced on the Franciscan friary here. Professor Tygo Keefe of University College Dublin identifies a number of phases in the friary's development. It was rectangular at first. Later, a transept was added, with a fashionable triumphal arch that faced southwards towards Barry's castle. The bell tower, always an integral part of the overall plan, was built in the final phase and placed equidistant from both gables of the friary. The friary's decline is part of a larger story. In the 1530s, Henry VIII, King of England and Ireland, broke with Rome, established the Church of England and passed the Act of Dissolution to close the Catholic monasteries. Many of those in England and Ireland who refused to acknowledge Henry as the head of the church were executed. Two wardens in this friary suffered such a fate, John O'Cahan and Bishop Botius MacEgan. But despite this and the severe penal laws of the 18th century that followed it, Franciscans continued to minister here until 1780. Noel Coleman tells us more about the story of the friary.
1: The notice on the railings beside the main gate tell us, David Oak Barry built this friary for the Friars Minor of St. Francis in 1251. While the Franciscan friary was home to a mendicant order that lived by preaching and begging, their patrons, the Barry family, financed several major redevelopments of the friary. Over the centuries, these expansions showed the growing wealth and power of the Barrys. But the friary also reminds us of the cycles of history. The friary had major calamities during its history and one stands out over the others. I always imagine the consternation when a resident walking along the main street one morning in 1814 was startled by the dramatic change in the skyline over the friary. He would have rushed to tell his neighbours, the great bell tower has collapsed. Even though silent for a long time, The bell tower had dominated the ruined friary for centuries. Before that the bell tower regulated the monks daily lives. Its tolling called them to regular prayer and worship. Now a lasting reminder of the monastic religious lives of the brothers of Saint Francis was gone.
0: The collapse of the bell tower greatly damaged an already fragile and crumbling structure. Fortunately, during the 1850s, groups of people were inspired to promote an appreciation of what our ancestors had bequeathed to us in the way of language, music, games and our built heritage. Among these were eminent architects and antiquarians. With the enthusiastic cooperation of Canon Buckley, who built St Mary's Catholic Church, the rubble of the interior of the friary nave and chancel was removed and architectural remnants or spoilia were collected and inserted in the north wall as a sort of medieval museum for the curious, as the antiquarian Richard Brash described it. As well as architectural fragments, they also collected a large quantity of human remains and bones and for some years these provided a ghoulish interest for visitors. In the fairly recent past... The bones were reinterred in the crypt under the friary. St Mary's Catholic Church. St Mary's Church was constructed in 1836 under the supervision of Father Con Buckley. Lord Donerail provided the site within the grounds of the Franciscan friary, and he also gave a generous donation towards the costs of construction. The church was designed by architect Charles Cotterell of Cork and it incorporates the old Desmond Tower that dates to around 1400 AD. The church has been designed in a neo-Gothic style with a cruciform shape. It was built using finely hewn limestone sourced from the quarry at the rear of the nearby Lombard's Castle. The beautiful stained glass windows are a special feature of St Mary's. The north window over the high altar was designed and supplied by Mr. Mayor of London. Designed in stunning Munich glass, in its centre is the figure of Jesus Christ. On his right is the Virgin Mary, and on his left, St. Joseph. It also contains 15 angels playing various musical instruments. The dedication on the window reads... For the glory of God and beauty of his temple, this window was erected by Mrs. Margaret Tracy of Rathclare in memory of her parents, John and Mary Watch. Over on the south-facing wall, above the entrance, you can also see the stunning rose window. The Desmond Tower, which is incorporated into the east-facing wall of the church, is believed locally to have been built by the Earl of Desmond. According to legend, the heartbroken earl had the door to the tower constructed ten feet above the ground so he could remain in solitude after his wife's death in childbirth. Archaeological discoveries in Buttervent For many years, archaeologists regarded Buttervent as a somewhat enigmatic town. Acknowledged as a medieval town, its street layout hinted at European parallels. A major conference held in 2011 on the medieval origins and development of Buttevant proved to be a turning point in our understanding of its history. The findings, published in Buttevant, a medieval Anglo-French town in Ireland, concluded that the town's layout closely mirrored those of the Bastide towns of southwest France the town may have formed part of a movement of so-called New Town or Villanova development that was widespread across Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries. Such towns were often, but not always, associated with regular street patterns, as noted at Buttevant. Despite the apparent similarities with other New Towns in medieval Europe, and despite the existence of the friary and castle, Very little archaeology had been unearthed within the town to corroborate these theories. That situation changed spectacularly in the summer of 2015. Street enhancement works were underway by Priority Construction Limited, on behalf of Cork County Council and Transport Infrastructure Ireland. The work involved resurfacing the roads and footpaths and modernising underground services. In compliance with government policy, these works were monitored by archaeologists, in this case by Rubicon Heritage Services Limited. As street works were underway in the area where you now stand, the attending archaeologists signalled urgently to the work crew. Something had caught his eye. Cleaning back compressed soil, which served as bedding to the remnant 19th century street levels, The surface of a large limestone block was revealed beneath the road. Further cleaning revealed another lower down, then another. These were stairs. But leading to what? Excitement grew. Archaeological colleagues rallied to assist. Trowels in hand, they exposed more of the stairs, which ran deeper and deeper into the ground. As the investigation gathered pace the stairs were found to enter into a large stone-built room. This was no street cellar. This was a substantial building located beneath the roadway. A major archaeological excavation followed, and more buried secrets were revealed. Running from the northeast corner of the building were the remains of a stone wall, measuring over two metres wide. The wall was constructed of hewn outer stones with a rubble core all soon became clear. The wall formed part of the town boundary wall. The large building proved to be a gatehouse, measuring roughly 8 metres by 6 metres, that once protected the northern gateway entrance into the town. In medieval times, this would have been a busy place. Carts would have travelled in and out through this gate, with local produce like hides, wool, Irish cloth, livestock, grains and timber being brought in for sale in the town's market square. Many of these goods were then exported to England and mainland Europe. Imported exotic goods like English and French cloth, manufactured goods, wine, spices, dye stuffs were also available. The town wall and gatehouse were used by Lord Barry, the resident of Buttervent Castle, as a means to control trade and commerce within the town by extracting levies and other taxes from those entering or passing through Buttervent. The town wall and gatehouse were also built for defence. At the time these were being built, the country was convulsing under colonial oppression with widespread political and social turmoil. The earlier, most likely wooden defences would have rendered Buttervent vulnerable to attack. The excavations that were undertaken have proven hugely significant. The boundary of the medieval walled town of Buttevent has finally been discovered. Further research based on the findings are ongoing and much more insights into the early development and economy of Buttevent are expected. Catherine Roach tells us about the discovery of the town walls.
2: What is really intriguing about the discovery of the town wall is that we have some corresponding historical records. These suggest that William de Barry is likely to have established the Anglo-Norman settlement at Botevant soon after 1208. Botevant Castle was probably constructed of timber initially, then rebuilt with stone. The original village of craftspeople, artisans and other suppliers probably developed to the north of the de Barry Castle and nearby church. In 1234, David de Barry, William's son, was granted permission for a weekly market and yearly fair. While the early town may have been bounded by timber defences, a record from 1317 tells us that John de Barry, David's son, was given a grant of £105 for Buttovent to enclose it with walls. The walls mentioned are likely to include those excavated at this location. Another record from 1375 makes reference to a north gate. This is clearly the very same gate and gatehouse unearthed here. The town walls degraded over the centuries that followed. A visitor in 1750 wrote that there are still to be seen the remains of a wall that surrounded the town. Another, in 1824, mentions traces of a town wall. By the mid-19th century, no evident remains had survived, and the layout of the medieval town had been lost, until now.
0: The Expansion of the Town in 2015, as street works were continuing, further archaeological discoveries were made here, outside Coleman's public house. A stout limestone wall was exposed beneath the modern road. It was aligned perpendicular to the street. On the outer, downhill side of the wall, the ground was clay. But on the inner side, archaeologists found tightly packed cobblestones set up against the wall. Further cleaning yielded yet more cobblestones. More and more would follow. It immediately began to dawn on them. These weren't just cobblestones. This was an old street surface, a medieval street. The wall they had unearthed was an outer boundary wall for the town. As the excavation progressed, the line of the wall suddenly ended at a right angle in the middle of the street. This formed a gap in the boundary and was clearly a gateway, although much less impressive in scale than the wall and gatehouse on earth further to the south. In medieval times, the newly extended town would have incorporated the road leading west from Buttevent, thus increasing the potential levy and tax gains for the town. The expansion of the medieval town, as evident by these excavation findings, corresponds to a general increase in the economy of the county in the late 13th and early 14th centuries. Underneath the town boundary wall, archaeologists found evidence of post sockets, suggesting that the town wall here was initially formed by a palisade of stout timber posts that was later replaced by a stone wall. The archaeological excavation also showed that, in places, successive layers of cobblestone survived, representing traces of various street levels, dating from the medieval period to the early 18th century. Finds recovered included medieval pottery, buckles, buttons, spurs and glass beads. Notable finds included 18th century clay wig curlers and a beautiful gold posy ring adorned with the inscription E.G. February 7th, 1713 the expanded boundary of the medieval town likely reflects the prosperity of the town in the 14th century and the corresponding increase in population pressure. Here's Catherine Roach talking about one of her favourite artefacts from the excavation.
2: Personally, my favourite finds from the excavation was the clay wig curlers. In the late 16th and early 17th centuries, there was a widespread outbreak of syphilis across Europe. This was a very debilitating disease, one side effect of which was hair loss, for which wigs were worn. From the mid-17th century, however, the wearing of wigs became more of a fashion item. Wigs were expensive, a basic wig equating to a week's wages for many. Soon the flaunting of wealth was achieved by wearing bigger and bigger wigs, hence the term big wigs, for someone of wealth or authority. It is amusing to think of the wig curlers found in our excavation being used by the big wigs of Botavent in the 18th century.
0: John Anderson John Anderson was born into modest means in Portling, Scotland in 1747. He became a successful entrepreneur and made a fortune as a merchant importing and exporting to Europe and America. In 1780, John Anderson and his family moved to Cork. In this period, Cork was one of the busiest ports in Europe, at the centre of Britain's vast trading network. Over the next 20 years, Anderson became one of the most important and influential businessmen in the county, and his name is still remembered in the city as Anderson's Key is named in his honour. In 1789, Anderson pioneered the first mail-coach service in the country. It allowed passengers and mail to travel cheaply and laid the foundations for a nationwide communications network. This was an immense undertaking, as Anderson had to build hotels, coach stops and stables along the way, in addition to providing horses, coaches and other services to support this enterprise. He was also responsible for any repairs or alterations to the roads used by his coaches, and all at his own expense. By 1791, Anderson had acquired estates in Fomoy. His presence and drive enabled the establishment of two military barracks, a hotel and many other commercial ventures that transformed Fomoy into one of the most prominent towns in County Cork. In 1807, John Anderson had acquired enough wealth to purchase the town and manor of Buttevent. He made Barry's castle his home and spent lavish sums refurbishing the old buildings, making extensive alterations to create a luxurious and modern home, fitting for a man of his means. He had a large mill constructed adjacent to the castle on the Aubeg River and a large barracks was also constructed. This led to great commercial success for Buttevant, and the town enjoyed an economic boom that lasted over a hundred years. However, John Anderson was not only concerned with business, he also had a deep sense of social obligation and became a generous benefactor to the region. He had a deep appreciation for education and became a founder member of Cork Library in 1792. He also established school and church buildings along with other civic projects in the county. After the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Anderson's fortunes began to decline. In 1816, he became bankrupt when land prices fell, investments failed and his bank in Formoy closed. John Anderson died in 1820, aged 73. His son, James Caleb Anderson, continued to live in Butterfield Castle. He was an engineer and inventor whose lifelong work was the building of steam-powered transport for passengers and goods. He was also responsible for repositioning the road around his home in Castlelands. Ironically, Caleb's work on steam transport would eventually lead to the demise of his father's efforts in the mail coach industry. The Orbeg River. The story of the town of Buttevant is largely shaped by the River Orbeg, as the town developed on its western bank. The name Orbeg comes from the Irish Elnbjok, meaning the small river. An appropriate name for this shallow lowland river that gently flows over limestone bedrock. This stretch of the River Orbeg is designated as a special area of conservation under the EU Habitats Directive. While living nearby in Kilcolman Castle, the famous Elizabethan poet Edmund Spenser described the River Orbeg as "gentle Muller" and "Muller Mine," thereby immortalizing this river's beauty in his poetry. Since this gently flowing river is undrained here, it provides sanctuary to a rich diversity of natural habitats. Riverside flora, fauna, and birdlife abound here. The river itself holds a number of protected species, including eel and stone loach, salmon, brown trout, minnow, river and brook lamprey, with some juvenile and sea lamprey, and stickleback. The very rare white-clawed crayfish is the most significant species here. The white-clawed crayfish is Ireland's only crayfish species. It is no longer resident in European rivers, but is noticeably present here in the Orbeg and provides a valuable food source for our resident otter family, who can regularly be seen foraging during their evening and daytime visits. The river contains floating river vegetation and fully aquatic plants, such as pond weeds, water milfoil, common club rush, water starworth, lesser water parsnip and watercress with the riparian margin home to larger plants tolerant of water flow such as large willow, common club reed canary grass and flowering rush, marsh marigold, yellow iris, water mint, meadow sweet and wild angelica. At the edges there is also shelter for smaller species such as water forget-me-not and celery-leaved buttercup and purple loosestrife. The river edges are abrupt and steeply sloping with the western bank flanked in willow. Species including cocksfoot, Yorkshire fog and meadow foxtail grow amongst the grassland areas. Birds seen regularly include the grey heron, moorhen, mute swan, little egret, white wagtail, grey wagtail and mallard duck. The obeg provides suitable foraging for the kingfisher while the bankside trees provide suitable perch sites. Our small woodland and songbirds are well represented here. At dusk, bats take to the air and two large riverbank willow trees on the eastern bank are busy centres of activity. The friary ruins and the medieval bridge also provide roosting sites for several bat species. Further downstream, past the mill pond and millweir, stands mixed deciduous woodland. In springtime, it is carpeted in picturesque bluebells, primula and celandines, and is home to a small colony of our native red squirrel. At the northern section of this stretch of river, the Or 522, or Donnerail Road into Buttevant, crosses the river Orbeg over one of Ireland's oldest bridges. The de built it during the 1250s, and today this 13th century structure is a national landmark bridge. It was changed once since the 13th century when, in the 1730s, it was widened by 2 metres to allow for collection of a turnpike tax, a forerunner to our toll roads. At the southern reaches of this section, a clapper bridge was built by the Augustinians at Ballybeg Abbey. The clapper bridge allowed the monks access to their mill and lands that lay across the river Aubeg from their abbey. It is now in Dry Dock, since the course of the river was altered after dredging during the 1930s. Barry's Castle Barry's Castle was built on the banks of the River Aubeg by Philip and William de Barry in around 1200 AD on land seas from the Gaelic O'Donagans, who used to rule the lands around Kilnamulloch before the arrival of the Normans. Philip de Barry came to Ireland in 1185 and was awarded the lands around Buttervent as a reward for his part in the conquest. The castle was a powerful defensive structure, as it was built on top of a high cliff of sheer rock, where it got the name Boutemont, meaning abutment in Old French. The river offered additional protection, as it acted as a large natural moat, making an attack on the walls of the castle even more difficult. The castle suffered many attacks, not least that of Murrah O'Brien in the 1400s, who overran Munster, captured Butterven Town and attacked the castle. But thanks to its strong walls, the castle held firm on this occasion. The castle was captured once, in the late 1500s, during the Elizabethan plantation of Munster, by Lord Deputy Sidney, who laid a successful siege that allowed him to occupy the castle for a time. A gargoyle has kept watch over the castle for centuries. Gabriel O'Callaghan brings his story to life.
3: I am the gargoyle. If stones could talk, what would they tell us? Who am I? Some call me David Oak. Others call me King John, but I am the keeper of secrets. I stand watch over the front door of Barry's castle. I have watched here for the past 800 years. I have seen much history. The rise and fall of families of fortunes. I saw how the old Irish O'Donoghans hated the new Norman conquerors that the Barrys and the Barrys feared the Irish. But I saw them all flourish, and Butterfant became a prosperous trading town. Ah, but the great wheels of history turn, and I saw the Barrys fall, and in their place the Andersons rose up. They too brought much change, and they too fell. Now the castle is empty a shell and a shadow of its former glory. All I have for company are the courting couples who shelter in the doorway, and the drummer boy, who according to legend is doomed to eternity to repeat his betrayal of the barbies. The boy is said to have betrayed it to the besieger Sydney in Elizabethan times. When the castle was taken, The bugler, or drummer, was executed by the victor who said, Thus may all traitors perish. At night, the head still rolls down the stairs crying, Betrayed, betrayed, and a bloodstain on the stairs cannot be washed away.
0: The Barry family held the castle until the late 1700s... ...when they suffered financial difficulties. It was purchased by John Anderson... ...and he renovated the old medieval castle to become a fashionable stately home. He too suffered financial problems after the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century... ...and the castle came into the possession of Lord Doneraile. The castle changed hands a number of times after and it was lived in as a home until 1920. The last person to live in the castle was a Mrs. Giney, who vacated it after a major fire. The castle is still in private ownership today. St. John's Church. The St. John's Church that we see today was designed by the renowned architects the Payne brothers and was built in 1826. It was originally known as St. Bridget's Church as this was the site of an early Irish church that predated the Norman invasions. The Bridget of this site was the daughter of Lennon of Killingeen Lennon and sister of St. Coleman, first bishop and patron saint of this diocese, Cloyne. Bridget is an important figure in Budavant and a number of local monuments are named in her honour, like St. Bridget's Holy Well, Biddy's Tree and St. Bridget's Graveyard. In the 13th century, the invading Norman family, the de Barries, built two walls around Buttevant, and this site, with St. Bridget's Church, was enclosed within the outer wall, protecting it from any unrest between the Irish and Normans. The outer wall abuts the churchyard and the southern gate was along this section of wall. St John's Church is perhaps best known for its role in the very first steeplechase in history. Hear the story from Emily de Montfort.
4: St John's is a lovely quiet spot back from the busy road, tucked under the trees. But in 1752, two local gentlemen, Edmund Blake and Cornelius O'Callaghan had a huge argument. They were avid huntsmen and legend tells us that on this day there was drink taken and they argued over whose horse was the best hunter. We can imagine the scene, voices raised in anger while onlookers encouraged the row. This would be settled with a wager and a race across open countryside. The starting and finishing points were the spires of St. John's Butterfant and St. Mary's Donerail, both beside the river or The riders could pick a line between these two points and take in any obstacle, natural or man-made, that came then their way, like a hunt. We can imagine the men with the church behind them, waiting for the starters' orders. Bang, they were off through the trees and down to the riverbank, then across the Orbeg, and through the rich farmland on the other side. But it wasn't all easy ground. There were ditches, double ditches, fences, walls, trees, streams, and marshy ground to overcome. We can hear the thundering hooves, the panting horses, the men shouting encouragement, and the whips snapping. And there was pride at stake. While the men chased from steeple to steeple, We don't know who won, but we do know this steeplechase gave its name to some of the greatest races in modern horse racing. And the Grand National at Aintree is the king of these. All that from this quiet and peaceful setting.
0: During the Reformation, St Bridget's Church, then a timber frame building, changed to a Protestant church and was renamed St John's. This timber building was burnt down and in 1826 it was replaced with the magnificent stone church we see today. The Payne brothers designed several churches in the area for Moy, Castletown Roach, Mallow and here we see several of their signature details. For example, its shape resembling a Greek cross. Reverend Charles Bunworth was a noted Irish harpist benefactor of harpists, and served as rector here in the 18th century. When he died, he owned 15 harps, bequeathed to him by the last of the wandering harpists. The Bunworth Harp was his favourite. It was given to his granddaughter, Miss Dillon of Cork, and thence to her nephew, Thomas Crofton Croker. Croker was a famous antiquarian and collected Irish fairy tales. The Brothers Grimm later translated Croker's collection to German. The Bunworth Harp is currently in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Bunworth had received his MA from Trinity College Dublin and in time helped John Philpot Curran to prepare for the Trinity entrance exams. Curran was a famous 18th century orator and barrister and was father of Sarah Curran, Robert Emmett's fiancée. Today, St. John's still attracts many people who wish to trace their ancestors and visit their graves. In particular, the resting place of those men who were garrisoned at the military barracks in Buttevent. The Military Barracks The military barracks were located in the northwest of Buttevent, on the road to Churchtown. Originally, the barracks stood on a 23 acre site that was divided into three large quadrangles, with living space for 800 men. Today, it is broken into three sections, one of which houses the GAA grounds. The barracks were constructed as part of the military expansion during the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century. John Anderson saw the potential value to the economy of the town and in 1812 he gifted the land for the barracks to the British Army. It took nearly three years to complete the extensive barracks. The perimeter walls enclosed a parade ground, a training field, gymnasium, church, school, stables and hospital with administrative, dining and sleeping blocks. A copula with a large clock once stood over the central archway. Prior to its construction in 1875, a soldier marked the hour of midnight by striking a great gong. The central gateway was built from cut limestone in a handsome neoclassical style. A guardhouse stood inside the gateway and controlled access to the barracks. Life in the barracks was tough. Conditions were unsanitary by today's standards, with no running water and few washrooms or latrines. Overcrowding was a constant problem, with little personal space afforded to the soldiers. There was little variation in the diet, and the men often purchased food from the town to supplement the rather meagre rations. Despite these privations, money was deducted from the soldiers' wages for various statutory expenses, leaving the men with little money. Marriage for the ordinary soldiers was discouraged as suitable facilities for families were not available in the barracks until the middle of the 19th century when married quarters were constructed on the Buttervent to Churchtown Road. Despite the relative privacy of these marital homes in comparison to the general barracks, the married quarters were still subjected to inspection as they were classed as military accommodation. The garrison's church doubled as a school for the soldiers' children when the building was demolished in 1922, its stone and windows were used to build Shambalymore Church. The colonel in charge lived in a house within the barracks while each officer had his own sitting room with two small adjoining rooms. Dinner was a very formal affair, where dress uniform was compulsory. On Sundays, hundreds of soldiers in scarlet and black would provide a colourful spectacle as they marched to mass in the local churches. The logistical support required for the smooth running of the barracks was immense. Tailors, bakers, farmers, carpenters, along with many other enterprising locals, made a healthy living from the garrison. It was also said that alcohol could be purchased in almost every business on the main street, much to the delight of the men. During the agrarian disturbances of the 1820s, troops from the barracks were deployed to the farmers' homes to protect them and their livestock. The garrison took on a peacetime role for many years until the outbreak of World War I. From 1914 to 1918, thousands of soldiers passed through the barracks and its support camp at Bolivannaire, four miles northeast of Buttevent, prior to their deployment to the Western Front. The War of Independence after the 1916 rising brought savage hostility to the locality with attacks on the Crown forces followed by reprisals on civilians by the military. With the end of the war in 1922 and the departure of the British Army from Ireland, the barracks was abandoned. It was temporarily occupied by both sides during the Civil War but was burnt to the ground during the conflict. The Market House Located at the southern end of the town, a market house has stood on this site since 1234, from when David de Barry was granted an official charter. The charter allowed him to hold a weekly market in Buttevant and an annual fair in October that lasted for several days. The handsome building with its fine arcade that stands here today was erected in around 1750, The beautiful limestone fireplace inside is a modern inclusion. It was rescued from the medieval tower house at Lis Griffin in the 1960s when its western gables suddenly collapsed. The Market House and Market Green are part of the original grid pattern layout of the medieval town. This precise plan resembles the Bastides of southwest France. During medieval times and later, the market green was alive with the bustle of trading. It was also a place where petty criminals were placed in the stocks as punishment, while more serious crimes were punished by public execution. Indeed, up to the 1970s, the upper story was used as a courthouse. Today, the market green with its modern children's playground is filled with the noise of happy children at play. Lombard's Castle. The Lombards were merchant adventurers who arrived in Ireland following the Norman invasion of the late 12th century. They originated mainly in Lucca in Lombardy, in the north of Italy. The Lombards of Buttevant derived from the Italian Donati family. The entrepreneurial Lombards became very influential and prominent in the civic and political economy of Buttevant, Cork and Limerick. The Lombards often became city and county sheriffs and regularly rose to the rank of mayor. Reference to the Lombards is also strong in Elizabethan legal documents or Fiance in this area of North Cork. A village southwest of Buttevant established in the 1600s is called Lombardstown, showing their continued influence into the post-medieval period. The main focus of the Lombards was the highly lucrative wool trade, and their tower house here in Buttervent was conveniently located adjacent to the market house. Wool merchants like the Lombards became vastly wealthy during the medieval period, and the English king regularly turned to wool merchants to borrow money, effectively allowing them to become bankers and financiers. Even Pope Gregory turned to them to collect the papal tax to fund the Crusades. Wool was collected for taxation purposes and exported through Calais to Flanders, Ghent, Bruges, Lucca, and Florence. The now powerful and wealthy wool merchants formed themselves into a guild. After the first Norman Parliament was held in Kilkenny in 1310, they became known as the Merchants of Staple. David and James Lombard, merchants of Cork and Buttevant, were part of this guild. In the turbulent years of the 14th century, Buttevent had large town walls constructed to help protect the town from raiding and warfare, and a will by James Lombard refers to the Walls of Buttevent." The building known as Lombard's Castle is a 15th or early 16th century urban tower house, but it may stand on the site of an earlier building. Lombard's Castle is situated at the corner of a precise grid-pattern plan of the medieval town. This further suggests that the Lombards were in Buttevant from the beginning of the development of the medieval settlement. The Tower House of the Lombards was described as Lombard's Castle in 1690, when it was granted to Colonel John Gifford after the Williamite War. It was described as Lombard's Castle with two acres behind the castle called the Gardens and Lombard's Orchard one acre. In Smith's History of Cork, written in 1750, it was also described as Lombard's Castle. At the time, it was a free Protestant school run by Lady Frances Lanesborough, daughter of Richard, Earl of Richmond, Dorset. This explains why the street on which Lombard's Castle is situated is called Richmond Street. Modern Buttervent. Although, in many respects, Buttervent appears to be an early 19th century market town, with its broad main street and fine civic buildings, when you look deeper, you can see that the town's medieval origins are close to the surface. The town developed during great times of expansion. First during the medieval period, then again in the 18th and early 19th centuries under the auspices of entrepreneurs like John Anderson when two new churches, a mill and the military barracks were all established. Rail arrived in the 1840s and the town grew further. Sadly, Buttefant's railway station was the scene of a tragic accident in 1980 and a memorial to those who lost their lives has been erected there. Later in the 19th century, the convent and Boys' National School were the main additions to the built environment of the town. Buddevin thrived throughout the 19th century, with three hotels and every house along the main street either a pub or shop. The military barracks, whose daily demand for food, alcohol and entertainment created huge demand and work for the town and hinterland, drove the boom. Irish independence and the burning of the barracks by anti-treaty forces in 1922 resulted in Buttevent going into 50 years of decline. This decline was ended only by the opening up of the country to international trade and investment as part of the reforms of the 1960s and entry into the European Union in the 1970s. A new girls' national school was built in the late 1960s and it is one of the finest examples of modern architecture anywhere in Ireland. Today, Buttervent has gone through another investment boom, largely publicly funded, that has improved the quality of life in the town. One of the major events in Buttervent is the traditional Cahamie Horse Fair that takes place every July 12th on the main street. The fair is believed to have roots back in Ireland's prehistoric past, when Me was a High King of Munster, and his royal seat was nearby to the east of Butterford. Today, the fair is a lively and fun gathering of residents, people who lived in the area, the horse trade and tourists, and the event is always a great source of excitement and anticipation. Hear the story of Kahame Horse Fair from Dennis O'Sullivan.
5: Carmi falls on the 12th of July every year. The fair is on the 12th, unless it falls on a Saturday or a Sunday, then it's the next day, which would be Monday. Uh, up to 1921, the fair was held in the Fairfield in Carmee, where the fair gets its name from that townland. Uh, the origins of the, the, the fair are a bit unclear, but it's... Um, noted in the papers of charles ii who was king of ireland england back in the mid 1600s so we can go back that far as, as far as the fair in 1921 the fair was moved from the fairfield and caramy to the town of buddifant where it still is today it was a big occasion it still is in the social calendar of, of buddifant it supplied a lot of horses, particularly in the early days to the British Army for World War I. Most famously is, allegedly anyway, the horse called Moringo in 1799, which was Napoleon's war horse, his charger. And in 1810, a horse called uh, Copenhagen was, uh, was sold there, and it ended up as the Duke of Wellington's charger and was at the Battle of uh, Waterloo, 1815. On the fair day, most of the main streets from New Line to the Market Green was filled with horses. Men would stand around in groups, different horses, and watch the trade being made. There was always a man who appointed himself as middleman between buyer and seller to try and get a price agreed, for which he would expect a uh, consideration himself And the closing of the deal was always with a in the time of the hand to shake the deal and make it. And there was also, which was most important at the time, and it still exists, is luck money, that you gave luck with uh, with the deal to make sure your horse stayed good and sound. As young fellas in the town, you were always looking for an opportunity to maybe make some easy money. And you got that by holding a horse for an owner outside a pub while he went and had a drink after selling his animals.
0: Today, the town of Buttervent is still a largely agricultural community, sustained by the fertile farmlands of North Cork. The proximity of the town to cities like Cork and Limerick has also made it an attractive place to live for commuters, and these new residents have been warmly welcomed into the community. Ballybeg Priory. Located approximately one kilometre south of Budapent, you can discover the ruins of Ballybeg Priory, one of the best-preserved medieval priories in Ireland. It was founded in 1229 by Philip de Barry for the Canons Regular of St Augustine, an order of priests who lived according to monastic rule. The priory was dedicated to St Thomas a Becket of Canterbury, And the first prior was David de Cardigan, who, like the priory's founder, was Welsh. Ballybeg was constructed in the English Gothic style. The rooms you can see today represent a large church and bell tower, with religious buildings and a cloister to the south. The lava, or basin for the monks to wash their hands, can still be seen where a refectory once stood. The refectory was where the brethren used to eat communal meals. One of the most famous features of Ballybeg is a small circular tower located nearby to the southeast of the main rooms of the priory. This is a dovecot or columbarium with 11 rows of roosting boxes that housed pigeons or doves. The meat and eggs of the birds provided an important food source for the community and their droppings were highly prized as fertilizer. Ballybeg's dovecot ensured the birds were dry and safe from predators, with a small doorway at ground level for the monks and an opening in the domed roof at the top so the birds could safely fly out. Another doorway, set high near the roof level, allowed a monk to clean out the roosts in order to collect the droppings for use in the gardens and fields. Here's Dolores Cronin and the story of the dovecot.
4: I would not believe the number of people who come and look at the dovecote. They come from all over the world. Visitors are always impressed with it. Of course it is in perfect condition, bone dry and all its detail perfectly clear. It was a grand place to play in and we often played there as children. From the road it looks as if it doesn't belong to the old monastic rooms. It stands in the middle of a field a good bit away from them, but in its heyday the monastery was huge and the Dovecote was actually part of the buildings. An historian told me that the Dovecote can tell them a lot about the type of monastery they had here. The monks were very wealthy and they were very powerful.
0: The Augustinians were a particularly affluent order. They were diocesan administrators and played a key role in the bureaucracy of the Norman Conquest. The priory in Ballybeg owned over 2,000 acres of land, along with numerous rectories across the diocese of Cloyne, from which they drew an income. Theirs was not a life of almsgiving, preaching and penance such as lived by the Franciscans in Buttovan town. In 1541, Ballybeg Priory was eventually dissolved as part of the Dissolution of the Monasteries Act and it was recorded as being in ruins by 1750. Parts of the ruin were used by a farm until the early 20th century. Today, it is an atmospheric place to explore and to experience a sense of Ireland's medieval past. Conclusion This audio guide was produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland and with the support and participation of the people of Butterfund. We would like to offer a special thanks to all the storytellers of the town who kindly contributed their knowledge and insights, particularly Anne Coughlin, Noel Coleman, Dennis O'Sullivan, Gabriel O'Callaghan, Dolores Cronin, Catherine Roach and Emily de Montfort. The archaeological information that helps to shine new light onto the story of Butterfant is thanks to Priority Construction Limited, Rubicon Heritage Services, Arab Consulting Engineers, Kira McCone of Cork County Council, and Ken Hanley of Transport Infrastructure Ireland. For more audio guides and stories about Ireland's past, please visit abartaheritage.ie. Thank you for listening to our audio guide.
4: And we hope you have enjoyed your time with us here in the historical town of Buttovent.